Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Hello, I'm Henry Southern. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing art sponsorship more generally, but also the challenges and indeed the opportunities presented by the COVID-19 pandemic. We are delighted to be joined by Charlotte Appleyard, Director of Development at Business Innovation at the Royal Academy of Arts, Simon Fairclough, Director of Development at the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and Diana Williams, Fundraising, Sponsorship and Project Management Consultant, currently serving on the boards of The Collective in Edinburgh and the Association for Visual Arts in Cape Town. Welcome everyone. Hi. Hello. Broadly speaking, we will try and cover these five key areas, individual giving, corporate fundraising, trust and foundations, statutory funding, and new business initiatives. So there's a lot to cover here, and it's fantastic also to have such an international perspective with Charlotte and Simon both having worked in the US and Diana in South Africa, and it'd be great to draw on those experiences later too. But as a starting point, it'd be helpful to know the state of play with your organisations at the moment. Charlotte, if I kick off with you, please. I know that museums, as of July the 9th, um, could reopen and I gather even Picasso and paper, the exhibition has sold out. So things must be looking quite chipper for you. Yeah, thank you, Henry. Um, yeah, we actually, we reopened a day after we actually could. Um, we'd, we'd always planned to do so. I, I can't take the credit for this. It's my colleagues in front of house and uh, operations that really did all of that. But um, we were very keen uh, to reopen. <laughs> I mean, it cost us more to do it, to be honest. We didn't save any money by doing it, but we felt that it was important to play our part in cultural healing in that whilst um, we are open only at 20% capacity, we felt that by reopening and allowing people to come in and see an exhibition that rather sadly had been locked behind closed doors for nearly three months, that it, it sort of gave hope that the world was returning to normal. and. Um, I went in for a health and safety training day. I had to pretend to be a member of the public, uh, trying to find the loo and socially distance my way through the galleries, etc. And I have to admit, it was quite moving walking into Picasso, thinking these paintings have gone, other than security, have gone unseen for so long. And um, as wonderful as I think a lot of cultural institutions have been about engaging people online, there's nothing like the real thing. So it's it's great to be reopened. We have sold out. For now, uh, we are looking at increasing capacity, but we are being cautious because uh, we need to protect our staff and the public. Well, congratulations. And that sounds encouraging first step, certainly. And similarly, Diana, I know you work with a variety of arts organisations, but um, are you having similar experiences with the collectors? I mean, like um, Charlotte, we did open on July 9th. Um, when we were allowed to, but only partially. Um, unlike the Royal Academy, uh, we actually mostly outside space. So we're quite fortunate. We're on Carlton Hill in Edinburgh, in the old observatory in the Dome. And so most of the space is outside. There are some exhibition sort of sculptures outside. We haven't yet opened the Dome, which is inside with our latest exhibition, but people can come up get the kiosk is open, have a look at the outside spaces. And the dome's opening in two weeks and we're gonna have a one-way system. So similar to what the Royal Academy is doing. Um, and then at the, I think beginning of August, we'll open the observatory, which is a more confined space. So partially reopened, the numbers haven't been too bad, which is good. 
and we're just hoping people can enjoy the views and see the buildings from the outside and what we do have in the outside space looking forward to getting it a bit more opened fantastic um well i know just picking up from a couple of things we you guys said is that actually being able to experience the arts i went to the national gallery last weekend and to be up close with the the Turners and the Van Goghs was, a, was an amazing experience. But also interesting what you're saying about outdoor space. I mean, Simon, are, whilst concert halls must be quite challenging to be able to put things on, are you doing any outdoor initiatives and what's the general state of play with CBSA? Sure, we haven't done outdoor quite yet, although I gather it may be on the cards very soon. So I guess our uh, situation is it's our centenary year this year. So things weren't meant to be this way. We had the most amazing uh, plans from global touring to 20 new commissions, all sorts of exciting things, which have all been, been either cancelled or put on hold for now, and we'll come back to them later. Um, but our position is that um, our 90 employed musicians who work full-time for us have been on furlough since the 12th of March. Um, we have benefited hugely from the uh, coronavirus job retention scheme in sustaining the organisation in the face of over three million pounds of lost earned income. Um, and uh, clearly, the period after that scheme comes to an end and before we can get back to giving sort of normal concerts is going to be the most challenging for organisations like mine. But, but, but like the others on, on the call today, we're keen to get back to, to doing work as quickly as possible. We feel that we should be doing something rather than nothing, whatever happens. Um, and that music has an important role to play in, in social healing. So just this week, um, we have had our first ensemble back, a few musicians taken off furlough so that they can come back and record a, a, a series of performances which we'll, which we'll put out a bit later in the summer. Um, our choirs have continued to meet on Zoom each week at the time they would normally be rehearsing to have a sort of virtual rehearsal come social and they've produced various sort of digital uh, performances which we've shared over over recent weeks and months. So we've tried to keep keep going as, as, as best we can and we're really focused now on how we do get back to doing something useful with the amazing musicians we've got at our disposal. Well, I think some continuity there is that the arts by its very nature is very, is very creative and we all collectively find ways to put on open exhibitions, um, put on concerts or realise some sort of music events in any way we can, which is really encouraging. Um, Simon, I'll just go to you first about talking about individual giving. Um, you mentioned, of course, you've had your centenary year this year, and it must be quite tough, not just for you as an organisation and the musicians and morale, but also for your stakeholders more broadly. Um, and how do you put together a compelling narrative that's aspirational rather than just emphasising the crisis? And I think actually more generally, that would be a nice... Um, sort of memorandum for this uh, podcast. We know the state of play is very challenging, but what can we do and what, can, what advice can we give to our colleagues out there about um, looking forward positively? Sure, I guess and we've spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, issue um, because we were due to launch a major centenary fundraising campaign so pretty soon after the, the crisis began. So we have had to really pivot a lot of our thinking. But I guess from, from our perspective, where we have got to is that before the, the crisis happened, because we were preparing for a campaign, we had spent a lot of time really thinking about what we wanted the next five to 10 years to look like and what the important priorities were. And we had come to the view, really led by our amazing 
uh, visionary music director Mirga, that uh, in addition to maintaining the quality of the orchestra's work and its amazing track record in, uh, in nurturing talent, we needed to do more to, uh, to build the next generation of audience members, to welcome people in who perhaps haven't been concert goers in the past, and to think about the experience of coming to a performance and how that might need to change actually to, to make it relevant to, to a new generation and a, a wider and more diverse group of concert goers. Um, and at the same time, to take more music out into the community, building on the, the great uh, outreach and education program, which we've developed over the last 30 years or so in Birmingham, taking that to the next level. And our keynote project in that regard is actually setting up a, a state secondary school in Sandwell, which is one of the most deprived local government boroughs in the country, which is going to have music absolutely at the heart of its its ethos and its curriculum and so on. And we're a, we're a sort of key partner in, in, in that initiative. So, so we're continuing to work on that. And I guess what we have done is to think, um, let's pivot all of that into the corona situation and let's recognize that those priorities have actually become even more urgent so it's in a sense accelerated the need to do some of the things that we were thinking about doing anyway and what we have decided to do is to to articulate a two-phase case for support so a recovery phase over the next one to two years which is really about getting on our feet, but using this as an opportunity to get started with huge uh, energy and enthusiasm on some of those priorities. And then a, a campaign in the sort of, you know, two to five year period, which looks a little bit more like what, what we were, were thinking it would look like originally. So we, we sort of pivoted the, the case for support. In terms of keeping in touch with donors and sharing that thinking, We've done a, a lot virtually, as I'm sure many people have. So we got into using Zoom for donor engagement very soon after the, the lockdown began. We have weekly drinks for our higher level supporters on Thursday evenings, and lots of people join and come and listen to what we're up to and, and have a chat and see each other's faces because they often see each other at concerts anyway. We've done webinars with, uh, with some of our artists, Mega and some of our other uh, key artists. Uh, we have done round tables for major donors with Mirga actually as a discussion about what the future looks like. Uh, we've done lots and lots of phone calls, spent an awful lot of time on the phone as a, as a team and had some of the artists doing the same thing. So really sort of trying to keep engagement going with donors as much as we possibly can. Excellent. So it sounds like in many ways having a 100th anniversary and really um, trying to clearly articulate your strategy for the next few years you're better prepared than ever for a pandemic <laughs> perhaps it was quite challenging at the start but i do think that idea of using this as an opportunity to accelerate uh your key priorities is something that you know many organizations could consider as a as a strategy and as a narrative over this period and whilst it seems like a very clear um strategy um has it been successful is it you, are you able to given an indication but actually measurably has it has it have donors got on board with that yeah i mean we've we've brought in i guess sort of seven to eight hundred thousand pounds in new money since the 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 pandemic began from from bigger donors from major donors in addition to people giving at, at lower levels so yeah people are, are getting behind this and i guess that's about a third of what we'll aim to raise over the next year or so 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 pretty good going so far fantastic congratulations um 
Charlotte, I, I know that 30 years ago, the Royal Academy had no friend scheme whatsoever, and now it's a third of your income. Um, obviously, there's some very successful strategies been put in place there, but not only more generally, but how have you reacted to the pandemic as well? Um, I'd love to say that we we were a strategic as Simon. He makes it sound so sort of well thought out and everything. But I think um, if I were to, say, I hesitate to say opportunity, but you know, we're fundraisers. Um, a disaster is always an opportunity. Um, I think what was interesting for me was one of the big challenges we all have as arts fundraisers is nothing's ever as urgent as medical or humanitarian causes. And whilst I think crudely you wouldn't really be in front of a donor or a friend or whomever and say you know they'll say well why should I give money to you rather than to the RSPCA or something there's always that uh, challenge of demonstrating need uh, because ultimately we can't do the give a man a fish um, ask that Oxfam or some does so successfully but what was actually quite interesting for me anyway is week one of lockdown I had to write a case for support which was for the first time ever I could answer what was really at stake because getting someone to sponsor an exhibition or become a friend or give on top of their membership is you have to really love art or you sort of have to make quite a good case for art whereas now I was actually able to say we're cancelling exhibitions the students in the Royal Academy Art Schools aren't getting educated um, you know things are really not happening um, we are losing a million pounds a month by being closed um, so actually whilst I I can't pretend to have enjoyed that kind of fundraising because it's scary because not only are you trying to do your job but at the same time everybody has friends and family who they're worried about um, I did rather enjoy actually having an urgent message and I think that's really worked um, we've not gone public with uh, fundraising per se to the friends quite yet we have plans to uh, with a couple of different initiatives what we've really been working on is those people we already know because we knew that we were going to lose a lot of money so frankly day one my boss told me to just get on the phone and that's what we did and we have raised a lot and people have been very generous um we're lucky at the ra that the upside of no government funding is we've always had to rely on individuals so we've got long histories with people who've given us a lot of money for a long time and um, whilst it's not the kind of fundraising I like to do often, I don't think you can do crisis fundraising more than perhaps once every 10 years. Um, people were generous, people understood. And whilst many said, you know, obviously I'm supporting the NHS or I'm giving to COVID related charities, those that really loved the RA were generous and did understand. But I think the big difference for me was understand was emergency fundraising. I've, I, you know, in the arts, you don't really do that. You don't have that you know if you don't give us money we will not be able to cure these children you just don't have that kind of urgency usually so I um I was grateful to be able to lean on knowledge from colleagues in the humanitarian and medical sector and I think that's really resonated with people so in terms of say referring to like Simon's Tuesday's approach of one the emergency funding and two the for looking forward to the future it's very much been focused on stage one and that's obviously it's proven to be very successful yeah, um, we, we are looking to, I, I don't want to say we're not looking to the future, it sounds sort of I was useless at my job, but uh, the, the honest truth all. is that for the last couple of months, it really has been, this is the gap. So effectively, we've been closed for six months, or we're forecasting that. Um, at the end of our financial year is August, we have an academic year. And so by that period, um, even though we've reopened financially, we're effectively closed. 
And so we lose two million a month by being closed. Uh, a million of that comes back through the Friends membership, the patron scheme and the corporate membership. Um, and we're trying to fundraise as much as humanly possible. Um, I don't know if I can say the figures yet because we're about to apply for various funding, but it, it's, it's seven figures. We're, we're, we're really happy with what we've done, but we've not raised back all of the gap by any stretch. And I think that moving forward, um, it will be a version of what Simon said is that, you know, obviously will be emergency fundraising to some degree to backfill. Um, but my, my guess is, um, a combination. We're lucky we, we just finished our big capital project. We have a much smaller one for the schools, uh, which we will probably cap. We, we'd raised almost all the money for that. I think we'll probably cap the project now. And um, basically readjust. Uh, the next priority was always the endowment, as it is for everybody. Um, and I think it'll be a hybrid of fundraising for the endowment and backfilling the money that we didn't make because we were shut. And Dan, are there any synergies there with um, the experience of Simon and, and Charlotte with the collective and also um, in, in South Africa? Sorry. I mean, the collective, we immediately applied for emergency funding, picking up from what Charlotte said. We're very fortunate to get money from the Heritage Lottery Fund, from Esme Fairburn. Actually, the local council gave us money towards the trading arm because we're in common good buildings. So we picked up very quickly on that. The furlough scheme has been a savior for our staff. So that's, we've used well. Um, and I guess what we're doing at the collective is local. So we're in a couple of different networks networks with other visual and performing arts groups and we're looking at how to kind of revive the creative offering in Edinburgh in you know current times and going forward obviously the Edinburgh festival and all the associated festivals were cancelled so the city as a whole and obviously Scotland has really taken you know a, a downturn in terms of tourism in terms of obviously anyone going to the arts but that's their big big offering during the year so we're in a group called Desire Lines, and we're, it's partnerships, and it's local. So we're looking at local businesses to support and partnerships with fellow creatives and festivals, but also with mental health. So we've got Desire Lines as a three-pillar approach. It's creative response, well-being, place, and production. So it's across kind of social and creative circles in the city. And we're looking at renewing the purpose of citizens in Edinburgh, in the sphere of the arts and outside of the arts as well. So I think those are great initiatives. You know, I don't know what's happening in Birmingham. London is obviously bigger, so it's a bit different. But I think those kind of local partnerships are really important. And then on endowment, I just want to mention that the Association for Visual Arts in Cape Town which is the oldest visual arts organization in South Africa, started 1850, and became actually its initial collection and safeguarded the colonial works that were happening at the time, um, became the South African National Gallery, which is headquartered in, in Cape Town today. Um, the Association of Visual Arts, also we had no endowment funding. We're kind of living hand to mouth. 
Um, we do sell that brings in funds and then we do get government and donor funding very little corporate. And we launched an endowment campaign last year. Well, it was actually a collector's circle that their membership would go towards an endowment. And we have 10 collectors who joined the circle at the end of 2019. We had a whole program for them as part of their membership this year, and it's all gone virtual, but none of them have pulled out. So, you know, speaking to Simon and Charlotte, you know, everyone stayed with us. They're doing the virtual program. We're keeping them engaged like both of you. And next year we hope to be back physically. But um, I think if, if people, you know, individual corporates are invested in your art form, in your institution, they'll stick with you. And I think we've all found that. So, and I've found that with the groups I'm associated with as well. well that's very encouraging. And it's interesting what you're saying also about, um, engaging the city, engaging the local community, creating other artists, organizations and partnerships. Is that something, Simon, which you've been able to do in Birmingham as well? And has that also had a measurable difference in, from fundraising point of view as well? There's a lot of uh, conversation between the Birmingham arts organizations. I have to say probably slightly less on the fundraising front than it sounds like is the case in, in, uh, in Edinburgh. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of uh, energy around the idea that as we emerge from this, there's a need to tell the story of the cultural sector together rather than of, you know, 10 or 15 different organizations within the city trying to sort of shout and see who can shout the loudest. So, so lots of collaboration, certainly, yeah. And comparatively, Charlotte, what do you find with the Royal Academy? Is it a bit more isolated because there's lots of rival other galleries and exhibition spaces? Yeah, I'd love to pretend we all work together, but I... <laughs> Probably, yeah. I, no, I mean, I, it's, certain, it's certainly collaborative between development directors. I, I do find that we're all very willing to share knowledge and information, but um, it's, um, I, I wouldn't, you know, I think the, the best example is uh, when, uh, when all this happened, my CEO, Axel Ruger, worked with the other what we call unfunded organisations in London, so like the Royal Abbott Hall, uh, the Globe, uh, Old Vic, I'm forgetting a couple, so apologies, but um, to lobby government from the beginning to say we need a bailout. Um, and that that was kind of strange, actually, because obviously as an organisation that's not taken government money for 252 years, um, and as someone who's been development <laughs> director for 10 years there, I sort of was like, oh, government. But um, that absolutely was collaborative. And um, I, you know, the approach to uh, the Secretary of State to say, look, if there's a bailout, don't forget about us. Uh, was was very was very much a sort of working party. I think it, it would probably be misleading to say that on a sponsorship level we're collaborative. We do occasionally, if we have exhibitions that are, you know, one artist is showing at the RA or at the National Gallery, for example, we do occasionally approach sponsors together. But generally, because we're all big beasts with massive budgets, um, it, it tends to be. Uh, Collegial, but slightly competitive, I would say. Fair enough. Sounds much like the agency world. <laughs> um, interesting, actually, just, just picking up then about the statutory funding. Obviously, hopefully it's, it's fantastic news for all these all your organisations that there's 1.57 billion um, committed by the government, the UK government to arts and heritage. Um, I don't believe it's clear yet how necessarily how your individual organisations will benefit from that and the, and the timeline of those decisions. But um, Interesting, Sean, you were saying how you haven't had government funding before, but as the Royal Academy is, to quote Oliver Dowden, a crown jewel, presumably you'll be tapping into that now. 
Um, I assume so. Uh, we have until we see, you know, exactly what we're eligible for and obviously what's attached because government funding always comes with that. Uh, but yes, no, the plan will be to. Um, it's um, it's new territory for me, as I say. It's um, the Royal Academy is still governed by artists and architects, and it make it's one of the great pleasures of working there. Is that you know I, I went into doing this because I wanted to work with artists. I just didn't realise that they would be my trustees. Um, so, but that does mean that they are fiercely independent and fiercely proud of it, as they ought to be. And in fact, you know, we we got a very large grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund for our or whatever they're called now, sorry, they've just changed their name, <laughs> um, uh, for our Burlington project. And then they again gave us a, a grant last week uh, for the emergency fund. But my predecessor struggled to convince them initially that we should accept this money, not because it was government, but because quite naturally there were um, checks and balances and KPIs attached to that funding. And, you know, an organization that stood on its own two feet for a very long time struggles sometimes to say, OK, we'll have um, someone outside. But um, but there, as I say, it makes it one of the joys. Uh, we have agreed that we'll apply for it um, as and when we're told how to. Um, but, yeah, it, it's still new territory for us. So um, it will be interesting to see uh, exactly what the stipulations and criteria are. And Simon, whilst, as Charlotte said, um, it's unclear to say how that, that huge grant that was announced last week will be distributed and how arts organisations can tap into at the moment, but um, there have been, Arts Council have given MPOs and other arts organisations emergency funding and allowed them to repurpose grants as well. Is that something which CBSO have managed to utilise? Uh, actually, very few orchestras have been uh, eligible for, for that money. Um, simply because it was focused on the organisations with the most immediate need, which are largely those which are almost entirely reliant in normal times on earned income, which has dried up. So, so I don't think any of the larger orchestras received money from that pot, but obviously the, the sincere hope is that with this larger uh, central government bailout, there will be funds available for the, for the, for the major symphony orchestras. And I think the key priorities from our perspective are two. Firstly, that it is distributed quickly because we're seeing sort of day by day news from today's Royal Opera House, South Bank Centre, Symphony Hall in Birmingham earlier this week of venues in particular which are having to shed staff, which is going to make it much harder to get back to work quickly. And that is going to have a trickle down effect to the performing organisations and then frankly to the agents, to the publishers, etc. people further away from the from the public. So it's really important that the money is distributed quickly so that we can all get back to work. Um, and I guess the other priority is that there is some focus within the funding in getting back to work rather than simply staying shut because again of that need to A, be there for the public at this time and B, to ensure that money flows through the whole of the, the supply chain that we're all a part of. Absolutely, I think it's a very good point. It's all very well saying if the orchestras can benefit from that, but as, as the news was earlier this week, the town, Symphony Hall in Birmingham, if they're not supported then That'll make it far more challenging to see to get up and running again. Um, Diana, are you finding actually we really get to get interested to get your insight about Creative Scotland and how the collective um, might have benefited from anything from things north of the border? Yeah, I mean our funding comes through Creative Scotland, which is the arts and culture funding arm of the government, and we had already. Um, been promised and given our grant as COVID hit, sort of 
for their financial year, I think is March to April. So the funding was promised and has come through, um, hasn't changed. So we weren't affected by, uh, the funding wasn't affected by COVID. So that Creative Scotland grant is there. Um, we've been getting that for the last eight years. Um, as I said, we did get emergency funding from the city and also heritage lottery funds. So I don't know what's going to happen with this um, UK sort of latest grant from the cultural secretary, what percentage is going to Creative Scotland, and I'm afraid I don't know how they're going to disperse that in Scotland either. I think you, sorry, yeah, you go on. Sorry. God. No, I presume some of it's going to Scotland, but I'm sorry, I haven't looked at how it's working with the devolved administrations. No, no problem. Um, and I think you mentioned also, just briefly touching on trust and foundations, Esme Fairbairn is an example of um, a trust and foundation that has given emergency support, and I'm sure there are others as well. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, Esme Fairbairn came in very early when we were writing to people for emergency funding. So, yes, they, they've been very supportive. And if you go on their website, they've given across the UK to lots of performing visual arts. Obviously, they do social justice and other types of and environments as well, charity support. But yes, they were right there from the very beginning. So that's been really thankful for that. Um, actually, just, just open it up more generally. I, I know this is not necessarily a specialism, um, but uh, are there any other trust and foundations you guys are aware of that have been supporting in a similar way? I think there are a couple of kinds of support from, from trusts from our perspective. Firstly, like you guys, we had very early, very significant support from a trust which supports us regularly, a private family trust actually, uh, for which we were enormously grateful. It was the first big gift that we received after the lockdown began as an emergency gift. But I think the other really useful thing that trusts which have some multi-year arrangements with organisations like mine have done that's been so helpful has been showing some flexibility in how those funds are applied over this period. So we've been very grateful to have some really open dialogues with some of the trusts that support us about how we use their funds over this period to ensure the organisation gets through it and perhaps some of the restrictions are, are lifted or some of the time expectations are, are flexed a little bit to allow us to, to use the funds in the most helpful way and that's been really helpful. So actually maybe a message then for listeners who are um, keen to get some helpful tips from, from this, I suppose it's actually perhaps going to um, existing trust and foundations, grant giving bodies are already supporting your arts organisation and seeing what more added value they're able to bring at this time. Um, Charlotte, you mentioned that perhaps with certain uh, statutory funding, but also funding more generally, that might be certain... Um, uh, prerequisites to to having that funding in the future and something which um, a discussion with I know has been, been happening is that with this huge grant that's coming through for the arts and, and heritage um, from the government that there should be um, more a focus on that in terms of reciprocal benefit for um, that in terms of diversity and inclusivity and I suppose I wanted to ask what role does arts fundraising have in um, making the cultural landscape more diverse and inclusive to ensure that donors aren't just largely male, pale and stale and um, how this can ultimately be reflected in the audiences that are also appearing in galleries, concert halls, etc. Um, well, I'll be the first to admit that like lots of organisations, we're, we're on the nursery slopes of this, you know, the RA is 252 years old and you can't really deny that it's a, it's a, 
a dominant history of male pale as dale to some degree uh you I mean, you can't get away from that uh what's happened uh, pre-covid was a huge change in the number of nominations of women and ethnic minorities to academicians that was already happening but i think obviously with what happened recently with blm uh, it rather sped up, like the pandemic has sped up so many things technologically, uh, activist groups sped up what we knew we had to do anyway, which was um, sharpen our inclusion policy. I've been very keen from the beginning. Um, we have an incredible director of learning and collections, uh, Rebecca Lyons, who leads on this and has a lot of experience in this area. And I was keen from the beginning that we didn't just see this as a charitable exercise, because it's very tempting to sort of see diversifying your audience as a kind of access thing only and getting in you know busting in school kids who you know they might have a lovely experience when they're there but they go back to their school or their homes where then it's not followed up there's no you know they, the parents or the teachers just don't have the tools to do so obviously access is a big part of our program and obviously um i fundraise for those programs however what i'm really interested in is how we can diversify our business development tools to include BAME owned businesses uh, to go to communities who you know have money um, and don't necessarily think well why would i sponsor something at the ra why would i partner with the ra that it's not an organization that looks like me or that welcomes me particularly and so again i i, I confess we are only a few months into this as an exercise, but it's something that I'm very keen, you know, is a part of our inclusion uh, practice. It's not just uh, simply about, you know, can we diversify the workforce? Can we get more ethnic minority school kids in the building? But actually, how do we become somewhere that um, different groups want to spend their time and want to potentially sponsor and support? I don't have the answers. I, I've, I, I've sort of started having some conversations with some various groups and uh, representatives who can help us. But as I say, it's, um, I think the main thing is to remember that inclusion isn't a charitable exercise. It's that's that's only one small bit of it. It's actually about how does your brand align with those communities? You know, how do you convince people of uh, different backgrounds to come and just spend time with you and maybe buy a ticket, maybe become a friend. And on the other end, you know, maybe become a sponsor. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind for the industry. Absolutely. So it's a core part of what an organisation is about rather than an add-on. Yes. And do you resonate with that, Simon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd echo everything that, that Charlotte said, including the, the sense that we too are probably on the, on the nursery slopes on, on, on this. Um, a very interesting experience from my perspective was uh, Mirka's appointment as our conductor back in 2016. And that was a sort of watershed moment in the classical music world for, for women conductors sort of really being taken much more seriously. Um, because before her, really, there, were, there was Marin Alsop and very few other women had sort of serious major conducting positions anywhere around the world. So, so this was a huge moment. And I can absolutely say that a lot, a lot, a lot of the major gifts that we have received since then have been driven either directly because people are interested in female leadership and interested in breaking this glass ceiling or indirectly because of the sense of being a forward looking organization that that has created you know it's really driven uh, an increase in our fundraising so i think that's an illustration of this sense that 
that um, you know it's not a charitable exercise. Actually, it can be a a, a good way to do business to to promote diversity in in whatever form. Um, I think you know in terms of other forms of diversity, a couple of thoughts. You know, that there's a question of where's the chicken and and where's the egg in all of this. Um, and there's an argument, I suppose, that if you have a more diverse donor base, perhaps they want to support activities that help you to diversify your audience. I suppose my view on that would, I'd, I'd give two slight counter arguments. The first is that I think for a lot of donors who do, do look a bit pale and stale, um, actually the sense that a wider cross-section of society should enjoy this sort of organisation and what it offers is a really important philanthropic priority. So I think you do find donors from the white male community who actually are very interested in female leadership, for example, very interested in um, attracting younger people to this sort of thing, very interested in, in people from the AME communities getting, getting more access and more inclusion in, in, in the arts. So, so for me, I think it's not necessarily the case that only donors from, from those communities will support inclusion initiatives. Uh, and the other aspect, I suppose, is that it's really important in fundraising, as everyone knows, for donors to feel affinity. And for me, the starting point has to be, does this look and feel like an organisation which is relevant to the kind of people we're wanting to talk to? Or at least can we articulate plans that will make it more so and, and that are sort of really thought through and genuine and, and motivated by, by the, right, the right things? So, so for me, I guess that, that, uh, that question of, of being a relevant organisation and perhaps getting more people through the door before you start asking them for money is a starting point in all of this. Yeah, it's interesting emphasising relevance and um, also picking up on Charlotte's point about collaborating with education learning initiatives as well. And you were saying how um, it's a natural um, ambition for philanthropists to want to support initiatives of that nature and and building also on demonstrating as a virtuous organization of something virtuous and demonstrating a need in order to support these communities um diana in particularly in south africa how have you found this diversity and inclusivity issue yeah i mean south africa it's a totally different picture i suppose we're dealing with a totally different type of society and demographics and post-apartheid um, transformation, we are looking at non-Eurocentric art forms, and we're looking at inclusivity for all ethnic groups. There are nine tribes, and there's Asian community and very small white community. So it's, um, I don't really have time to go into it here. It's a, it's a really big issue there. And um, visual arts, performing arts, that Eurocentric base are trying to open up to everyone but there's not been the education around sort of, you know, visual arts um, in terms of contemporary art. And it tends to be sort of Western, seen as Western form. Um, but I think what you're seeing in the contemporary visual arts coming out of South Africa and the rest of Africa are contemporary uh, Africans who are, are, sorry, creating in a contemporary visual art setting. And, um, 
being accepted by the rest of the world and local populations becoming a little bit more used to what contemporary art is and how to engage with it. But it's a really big learning curve. And, and the same with the performing arts in terms of the Eurocentric performing arts, symphony, ballet, opera, their African tones coming in, and African narratives, and that's opening it up. So um, I think it's a, it's a big issue there. And um, I think we're grappling with a society that has a lot of different art forms and traditions, and it's hard to, to blend them all together. But I think the country's trying. So um, I don't know what to say on that. <laughs> Just saying that blending European and African art forms and trying to open it up to as many groups as possible. And really, arts education is very important in South Africa. There's been no resources for arts education. And at the school level, there's a lot of private and corporate donors trying to support arts education. So once you are adult, you can go into a gallery or museum and feel comfortable or go into a concert hall or into a theater. And I think it's slowly getting there. But obviously, it hasn't been a priority. Well, I think you did a fantastic job in summarizing a massive issue in about three minutes. So. <laughs> um, absolutely. Well, just building up from your uh, experience in Africa. I know you were commissioned by Business and Arts Africa and UNESCO to put together a, an art sponsorship management toolkit and um, specifically I wanted to also draw on your experience at St Paul's Cathedral Foundation, uh, Foundation and talk about corporate fundraising because um, I know they, that those went hand in hand and um, more generally but particularly at this time I mean there's an emphasis on companies want to be good corporate citizens and how if at all can arts organisations leverage from that? Absolutely. I mean, I think sort of leading on from my discussion about the arts sort of environment in South Africa, um, I think our one the second president after Nelson Mandela, Thabo Mbeki, said in one of his speeches, you can't just be a nation of taps and water and you need the arts to bring him social cohesion. And I think that's what um, we're seeing around the world with arts education, arts development, and with UNESCO funding that research that we did on our corporate sponsorship. And really what happened in South Africa and is happening around the world in other countries is governments don't have the funds to give to the arts as, as they would like to. And corporates have taken up some of that whole. And this UNESCO funded toolkit was to encourage South African businesses to give to the arts in addition to welfare and education and other pressing needs and how to make it a shared value experience for both the business, the corporate and the arts organization. And I think it's been successful on that. And we've had some great corporates giving in South Africa to the visual and the performing arts and uh, trying to bring in this social cohesion through the arts and not making a nation just of taps or of, of engineering or of just uh, mathematical engineering. So we go from STEM to STEAM education. And I think that's been lacking across the world where we're looking at science and not looking at the arts as a way to bring people together and to enhance our societies in general. So yes, the Arts Sponsorship Management Toolkit is on the Business and Arts South Africa website. And it's really about developing relationships with corporates and how you have a shared value between the corporate and the arts organization. And it's a win-win for both. And I think you can see, you can use it to build brand exposure, to create 
customers for your business to help you with HR tools and in South Africa particularly that divide between some of the different cultures and you're in a workplace how do you talk to someone from a different culture with a different language how do you both meet on the same page and the arts can be a real enabler for that so yes thank you I think it was quite successful Henry Fantastic and um, shared value. I know um, having spoken to you all individually is something which um, is something which I know is an important part of all your fundraising strategies. Um, not only of individuals, but also trusts and, and your strategy more generally. But um, Charlotte, with exhibitions being closed, and um, as you say, there are more pressing needs, and corporates in particular want to be seen as good corporate citizens. How? If at all, we've been able to um, articulate a need for the Royal Academy at this time with, with corporates. Um, well, fingers and toes crossed. I think we might have actually signed our first new sponsor during a pandemic, but um, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to say that just yet. Hopefully, on Monday, I'll be able to. Um, I think, funnily enough, um, again, I've already mentioned it, and it, it's not a new thought, but. Crises always speed up things that were already happening. So we were already starting to move away from a traditional entertain name on the poster model for corporate sponsorship. I mean, that's still our bread and butter. Don't get me wrong. People want to throw parties in the galleries. But naturally, even though we are still getting inquiries about events and whether they can throw parties, um, that side of the business has gone rather quieter. Um, but we were already moving towards content deals, more what I call more like a content deal than um, traditional sponsorship anyway. And that's just sped up uh, because actually uh, what we found, uh, certainly with our longstanding corporate supporters, they still want to reach our audience. Um, so actually the kind of deals that we were trying to put forward and demonstrate the value of sponsoring, say our Twitter feed or online content, et cetera, which we had, I say tentative steps into, we had done a couple, but they weren't getting quite the traction we'd hoped. They've really now suddenly expressed interest. I mean, our um, our daily doodle hashtag, which I can't claim any credit for whatsoever, is the uh, genius of our digital uh, content team. It, it's got something ridiculous, like 10 million impressions. I mean, you know, we, we don't have that kind of social media following usually. And I think that the value of, um, for us anyway, we'd always wanted to demonstrate that we were a working institution run by artists with an art school, not just showing these exhibitions. And so the fact that we did something where we actually asked people to draw every day um, has been really great for our brand, but also has really been picked up by sponsors. They're really interested in it because it's got a number of impressions that works for them in terms of um, making it a viable sponsorship deal. But also it's quite fun, you know, and, you know, all companies, I'm sure um, Simon and Diana will agree, at the moment they all care not just about, it's moved on in terms of corporate social responsibility into sort of wellness, mental health of both their employees and their clients. And so something witty and diverting like the Daily Doodle has actually generated an awful lot of corporate interest, as has, you know, our corporate um, entertainment package online, which is simply moving lectures and webinars and workshops online, has actually probably been better attended than things that we do at the building. So I think... Um, I think, as I say, I think it boils down to something that we knew was happening, having just happened a lot quicker uh, because uh, people are scared to leave the house in some instances or just conscious that um, the digital sphere is uh, potentially as lucrative as we knew it was. We just weren't quite hitting the money. And 
I my instinct is that the digital offering that we've developed whilst we've been in lockdown will always comprise a part of our sponsorship deals going forward. It, it just it's too successful uh, not to. Well, it's interesting how you've um, discovered new value elsewhere, say through the digital content, and that's probably a take takeaway for people that are listening. Um, and also presumably online content helps you to expand and diversify your audience as well, not people not just attending. Yeah, because you don't have, I mean, obviously some of it's paid for. I mean, if you're a corporate sponsor, we'll give you a package that, you know, is part of it. But um, actually a lot of our online content is free. I mean, the next big challenge I think that institutions and um, arts organisations will have is the one that the newspapers went through 10 years ago, where they put everything online for free and then suddenly realised everyone stopped paying and buying newspapers. Um, so I think that um, how we monetize that, I think what it's great for our audience in terms of getting someone who maybe has never heard of Ai Weiwei. Um, you know, we did this fantastic film that we re-released uh, to show the making of the exhibition, etc. But we're not monetizing it yet, um, or not that end of it. We're getting sponsorship, but we're not monetizing the access to it. And I think, I think that will be interesting in terms of how the arts manage that, and probably even more so for music because you know, you're not yet able to open the console halls. Well, Simon, that's a nice segue over to you for that. Sure, yeah. I mean, this is the, I think, the, the biggest challenge that, that this sector is, is facing at the moment. Um, you know, it's, it's enormously challenging. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it's hard to add much to what Charlotte has said. You know, it's... it's going to be so important that we move beyond this period where for all the right reasons many of us as organizations have given this content away during the lockdown uh, and it is going to be vital to generate earned income against digital content going forward just as the, the print media did as, as Charlotte said in the past. I suppose the other aspect which is a fundraising opportunity uh, for, for those of us at this end is the need for risk capital for many organisations to kind of get into this world in a much more industrial way than we've been in the past. And I think that that is actually, if presented in the right way, a really interesting fundraising proposition. And certainly a lot of our major donors seem quite interested in investing to get us started on this journey, but do want to see a sort of business plan that shows that it's not just pouring money into a black hole. There will be an income stream which at least begins to cover part of the costs coming back from the content in due course. So, so we're, we're working on that very, very hard at the moment, as you'll imagine. Um, and just coming back to um, cor corporate fundraising at this time, so have you also found um, things more digital initiatives, but also well-being and other similar themes are also proving to resonate with companies? Yeah, I, I, that the well-being and wellness um, agenda was something that we were hearing about increasingly um, from companies probably for two or three years before the crisis started, actually. So I think that has been a trend which has been developing over some time and we too have found that there is you know perhaps slightly less interest in corporate hospitality and more interest in the ability to use music as a tool to to meet some of these other objectives it's not just that actually it's we've got a lot of interest in using music as a tool for uh, leadership training for thinking about working as a team that sort of thing so i think me being much more creative in how we can use the arts to help businesses 
achieve a wider range of their objectives has been a, an ongoing theme for us. I guess at the moment I'm a little bit circumspect, and this is very specifically in the market of a regional English city, albeit a big one, um, about the corporate market. As it happens, we have secured our biggest corporate donation by a big margin uh, ever uh, during the lockdown, but that's a bit of a one-off and it took 18 months of negotiation and just so happened to come to a, a, a successful conclusion during this period. But I think that the businesses that we work with are facing really severe challenges over the next year or so, and, and really their minds are not on working with with arts organisations, even big ones in the context of Birmingham like ours at the moment. So from my perspective, corporate was already sort of the, the smallest of the three income streams by a significant margin. And my sense is probably for the next year or two, that's likely to, to be even smaller. And, you know, we're finding that major donors seem to have much more to give as individuals at the moment than, than corporates do. So maybe that's just the Birmingham situation. But, but I think it's it's useful to, to be slightly circumspect about the, the potential in this area at the moment. Well, it's interesting though, with Birmingham specifically, at least pre-COVID, um, HS2 was going ahead, lots of companies were moving their headquarters up to Birmingham. So perhaps that, does that present, or did at least present an opportunity for CBSA? I think, yeah, generally, you know, the economic growth of the, the West Midlands has been astonishing in my seven years in, in Birmingham to date. And, you know, all the fundamentals, the HS2, the level of investment, which is uh, on stream at the moment, suggests that that will, will continue. But clearly, there are going to be severe headwinds, uh, given the scale of the recession that we're, we're told we ought to expect over the next year or so. So I think, it, you know, the jury's out slightly on, on how that's all going to pan out. But, but hugely helpful to be in a city which is experiencing such a period of growth. Um, so moving on, the, the last point we wanted to look at was in particular new business initiatives and new income streams. So beyond the traditional box office and trust and statutory and individual giving, corporates, etc. Um, Charlotte, I'll go to you first because I know this has been a, a particular emphasis for you on, on innovation and you even had a new team. You expanded your team considerably, haven't you, in this area? So it'd be interesting to know your experiences today. Yeah, so um, about... The end of last year, we set up a new team at the RA of existing team members, of existing staff members called the Business Innovation Unit. Uh, uh, we, it's designed to come up with new ways of making money for the RA. Uh, so, as I say, you know, 40 years ago, no friends scheme. Uh, 30 years ago, not really any corporate sponsorship in any significant way uh, because we've always never had government funding. We've always had to come up with new ways to make money. And my um, big bugbear was obviously my job is to raise money for the RA and, but you know, all that growth are going to be incremental. I can put up the cost of something. I can obviously try and recruit more, all of the things that we all do all the time, but that ultimately what I wanted to do was come up with something that if I came back in 20 years time had turned, had grown into a sort of pillar of our fiscal health as it were. So it's a team of eight of us from across the RA. People are allowed to apply. They're played a bit extra on top of their salary to be in it. And we've got a representative from pretty much every department in the RA. Um, of course, it's one of those things that, you know, we only kicked off at the end of last year. 
and uh, we haven't really been doing it during lockdown. I know that's sort of in some ways counterintuitive because obviously lockdown is a time for innovation, but um, I think the innovation has really come from just the staff doing their usual jobs and as I say, all the things we've done with digital. But I do think it's important uh, to consider and obviously we'll reignite it when we go back to the office um, or go back to a more normal working life. But really, I, I feel very strongly that, you know, the arts are filled with very, very passionate people, but not always the most commercial people. And um, sometimes, you know, I've worked with or on the boards of organisations where the word commercial is just a dirty word. But we do have to think differently. And the fact that you, the point you made right at the beginning, Henry, is that, you know, we are a creative industry. And actually, sometimes there's hidden commercial creativity and members of staff who aren't in development. And that's why I was very keen for it to be across the board. So we've got people from curatorial, we've even got someone from the AV team in it. And um, where we're looking really is a combination of what I'm sort of, sounds like business jargon, but sort of opportunity gaps. You know, there's efficiency gaps, which is how do we get more out of the friends membership? How do we get more out of the corporate membership? But actually, what assets are we not selling? What, what do people actually want from the RA that we could monetize? And to be honest, a lot of it, um, the stuff we were starting to work on was content deals. You know, how do we essentially sell our expertise differently? Um, you know, how do our, you know, we're, we have very famous lates at the RA, which always sell out and they're extraordinary. They take over the whole building, a thousand people in one night. Um, do we take them off site? Do we sell that expertise elsewhere? You know, in the way that secret cinema make a lot of money actually from doing private events um, for, you know, people who hire them for their expertise, which they're known for their public facing. So um, I hate to say again, nursery slopes, because I've already said that once, but it is. But it's, I think, quite apart from the results that will hopefully come out of it, I think what's really important is it sort of demonstrated a commitment to innovation and to thinking differently about ways of doing things, which I think is quite a useful HR tool. Because if you're sort of, if you're saying, right, we are dedicating resource, we are dedicating time to this, then it encourages people to suggest things. And they might be mad and they might not work, but we have a conversation about that. And we, um, we got uh, special training in innovation and disruptive thinking. And I think I've already seen a real difference in my colleagues and, um, Actually, if nothing else, um, it becoming part of my job title when I'm speaking to companies for sponsorship, they're really interested in it. And funnily enough, I think the first thing that might happen is we might actually get the team sponsored because, of course, companies want to be associated with innovation. And so by saying we're committed to it, we're sort of ticking one of their boxes as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I think, you know, by only mission, if you say it's any nursery slopes is that the right expression um <laughs> then the fact you've got the commitment to it as you say to innovation to diversity to inclusivity to all these things is, is a really a really encouraging steps um and also the, the way you succinctly put it as commercial creativity i think uh, hopefully won't scare so many of the creative types off uh, diana have you um also been harnessing this expertise in a, in a similar way with, with your experiences um yeah, I mean, amazing, Charlotte, what you're doing at the RA. We're much, much smaller um, at the collective, but, you know, there is creative content we can harness more. We're actually utilizing our buildings more to bring in income. So we're very fortunate to be in the Thomas Playfair Enlightenment buildings on Carlton Hill. 
And we're actually undertaking a feasibility study to renovate uh, the old observatory house that um, one of the astronomers used to stay in and turn that into an upmarket kind of venue and Airbnb space. So we have um, planning permission to do that. And we've got the engineer and the architects um, plans on board. And so that's actually utilizing our spaces to bring in extra income. And um, we're thinking when the market comes back for tourism, people want to be on the hill, there's social distancing you can do. It's a special venue to have lovely upmarket cocktail parties or a small ceremony for a wedding or whatever. We also have the Lookout restaurant, which is amazing, that was built next to the transit house and we have social distancing in there. So obviously we take a percentage of those profits. So it's all associated around the collective, even though we're an arts organization, there are obviously all these other commercial ventures that feed into feeding our arts program because that's totally unfunded. We don't sell art and it's to showcase emerging artists from all around the world. So um, yeah, I think we are thinking about that, offering picnics. We do these wonderful audio walks up there too, around some of when the exhibitions are open as well as the outside sculptures. And we've had some of the artists talk through the walks as you take around the audio tour, you can hear the sights and sounds of the birds and look at the trees and see how the sculptures and, and the exhibitions work with the venue. So I think all of that, yeah, but I love what you're doing, Charlotte. And I'm sure we all can take a leaf out of your book and see how we can talk to our corporates and our individual donors about being more innovative with our resources, our buildings, our artists, etc. So that's great to hear. Yeah. Uh, Simon, um, well, firstly, I very much um, agree with you, Dana, about what the Royal Academy is doing. It's very, it's very interesting. And um, Simon, unlike the, C unlike the Royal Academy and the Collective, CBSO doesn't have a venue or has its home venue at Symphony Hall, but am I right in thinking it doesn't have management over that? So you can't necessarily utilize that as a space. What can you do as an organization to harness this commercial creativity? Well, like uh, Diana, I'm, I'm completely in awe of what Charlotte's doing. It's brilliant and so, so interesting. So I've been scribbling away and we'll go and think about all of this. But I think this idea of sort of sustainable uh, innovation is is so important and you know some of the initiatives that we are doing including establishing the school that i mentioned earlier which will be self-funding as a project it's not going to require philanthropic income from from my side in order to really expand our educational mission um, is in the spirit of what we're talking about here but we haven't put the structures in place that charlotte has got at this stage to to do this on a more industrial scale and I think it's so interesting to, to sort of create some capacity within the organization to to push this sort of thing forward I think for performing organizations as we have discussed the uh, pivot towards a digital future um, presents opportunities but also significant challenges in navigating that that uh, that journey towards monetizing what we do, which of course is very high quality and expensive to produce. Um, and I think for, for our kind of organization, that is going to be the, the key sort of challenge in commercial innovation for the next three to five years. Well, I think the uh, overriding message then is watch this space. Many thanks again for joining us, Charlotte, Simon and Diana, and for your really interesting and insightful points. 
Thank you also to our producer, Fiona Livingston, and sound editor, Merlin Thomas. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing the future of international cultural exchange. We have another fantastic lineup with panelists from the British Museum, Edinburgh International Festival, and from the home team, Harrison Parrott. See you then.